Hello, everyone. This is the Power Slam podcast. My name is Brendan Dennis. I am your host. And again, as I mentioned at the time of the last podcast, which was my Dominion preview podcast, we're sort of in a dead period right now leading up to both Dominion and Money in the Bank from WWE, which are now not too far off. They're faster approaching at this point, particularly Dominion, which is up on June 9th. Uh, We just had the Best of the Super Juniors final, which was on June 4th. And again, these are dates in Japan, and with most of us being located about halfway across the world, those dates tend to fall on days that are almost the preceding day for us. So really, the night of June 3rd kind of being uh, the Best of the Super Juniors finals, and then the night of June 8th being Dominion. But that isn't a bad thing because that means Dominion is coming up very close very soon here. Um, Today is June 5th. That's when I'm recording this Tuesday. I'm hoping to have this podcast up and loaded by, I would say, Thursday, June 7th. Because I do want to talk about some additional matches for Dominion. Um, I want to talk about some of the reasons why I believe that New Japan here in 2018 is the superior, at least adult, wrestling product compared to WWE, um, go over some of that analysis, and also talk a little bit about the trial that is currently ongoing and is going to be finishing up potentially today, being June 5th, between Chris Amon, Dr. Chris Amon, I think it's A-M-M-A-N, against both CM Punk and Colt Cabana. It's a civil lawsuit brought by Dr. Amon it's, it's essentially a slanderous lawsuit um, saying that comments made by CM Punk in Colt Cabana's wrestling podcast or during his podcast back, I want to say in November 2014, were inflammatory and damaging to his career. Uh, so I want to get into that a little bit as well. And maybe that's what I'll start off with here is specifically that discussion. Um, so that there is a trial, like I said, taking place as a civil trial in Cook County, Illinois, which is uh, the county housing Chicago, filed by Dr. Rahman saying that comments made by CM Punk in 2014 on Cole Cabana's podcast, which essentially painted Dr. Rahman as being somebody who was negligent to CM Punk or Phil Brooks, being his real name, um, to his medical issues have somehow wronged him and he is seeking retribution. Now, as I stated on the podcast previously, I am an attorney. I don't hold myself out to be the greatest attorney of all time, but I am a civil attorney um, here in Michigan. And to sue in a civil lawsuit and seek damages, you usually have to have damages. So when you're suing somebody, there's something that you're suing for. There's an impetus for the suit, and you're able to take whatever it is that you're suing for. Sometimes it's things that are difficult to quantify financially, like pain and suffering. Um, Those are hard to put kind of in the context of dollars and cents. But with Dr. Aban's suit here, I, I am kind of failing to see what the damages are, and here's why. He's still employed by WWE. He's still employed by WWE. From all, by all accounts, from what I can tell, he works in practically the same capacity with WWE here in 2018 that he did in 2014. So, and I, I mean, unless he's arguing that somehow there was some sort of 
maybe a promotion that he missed out on or something along those lines. I, I don't understand what the damages are. You didn't lose your job. I'm not aware of a private practice that he was seeing patients at outside of WWE that somehow lost business. So to me, that's the most difficult part of this trial, at least from Dr. Aman's attorney standpoint. Now, granted, I don't think they would have filed the suit unless they had an idea what the damages are. I, and, you know, I haven't gone into the actual pleadings and looked at court documents to try to figure out, you know, what it is that they're claiming. Usually that would be located in the complaint that was originally filed for the case. I, so I'd like to see what that says. But, again, I, I don't totally get it. So you're saying that this wrestler who was of some prominence four years ago when he made the comments made some comments that have basically ruined you. Well, again, if WWE had fired Dr. Rahman and said that he was negligent and clearly didn't take care of CM Punk pursuant to CM Punk's comments in November 2014, then yes, then I see some actual damages that may have occurred, particularly if those comments are not true, which I know Dr. Rahman is arguing that they are not. But again, with without those actual damages, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for a jury to quantify specifically what Dr. Rahman's looking for here, again, into a dollars and cents figure, and I, I don't think that he's going to pull out on this. Was it irresponsible maybe for Punk to make some of the comments on the podcast? Probably. I don't think they had to do it. As a matter of fact, I would say I know that he didn't have to do it, but that would only be kind of an issue for the purposes of this trial if it was actually damaging to Dr. Rahman. So that, that's the damages portion of the case. As for the rest of the case, which proofs I believe have now closed at this point, meaning that both sides have put on their case, I think today are closing arguments and then jury deliberations. From the notes that I read, it, it would have been interesting to have sat in on this trial. I mean, it's not completely groundbreaking stuff. There, there are probably some points at which you may have wanted to take a snooze. But from a wrestling standpoint, if you're a wrestling fan and you know, obviously, who CM Punk is, who, which the far majority of wrestling fans do, um, at least individuals who have been fans for the last five years, um, AJ Lee slash AJ Mendez being her real name, and then Colt Cabana, whose real name I cannot recall, um, I think his first name might be Scott, um, that portion of it certainly would have been interesting. And then one of the more different portions of the trial was the fact that CM Punk apparently cried on the witness stand, or at least got teary-eyed and had to compose himself. So the court actually took, I believe, a 15-minute recess, according to the notes that I read, for CM Punk to compose himself. Um, there were some odd nuances, again, more interesting from an attorney standpoint, where it sounds like Dr. Rahman's attorneys tried to introduce statements into evidence, particularly during A.J. Lee's testimony, where they kind of tripped over themselves and kept on inter trying to introduce the wrong statements over and over because they just couldn't pull up the right text messages, I think. So, again, from being both a wrestling fan and an attorney, I, I think I really would have enjoyed seeing portions of this case. But if you're neither, in particular, you probably would have fallen asleep. And even if you're just a wrestling fan, I don't know how interesting it would have been because most of the testimony focused on this lump. So what had happened was back in 2013, there was apparently a lump. It sounds like it maybe started back in July or August of 2013 on Punk's back and just continued to get worse and worse. And Punk kept on talking to Dr. Rahman about the lump. And Dr. Rahman was treating it in the way that he thought it should be treated. Um, 
which apparently differed from the way Punk thought it should be treated. Dr. Rahman supposedly prescribed Z-Packs, which became a really point, big point of contention with Punk because he didn't think that they were working at all. And according to CM Punk, the issue was a staph infection from which he could have you know, really suffered some severe physical issues and potentially died. And that's essentially what led to the podcast comments later on in 2014. Now, from Dr. Amon's perspective, okay, and what he's been brought up multiple times during the course of the trial was the 2014 Royal Rumble as having been a breaking point for Punk and a reason for Punk to have gone after him later that year, being that Punk reported to basically the back to production during the 2014 Royal Rumble that he was hurt and had basically had his bell rung and potentially had a concussion and that Dr. Amon wanted to get him out of the ring. He eventually was eliminated by Kane, which was the elimination that was supposed to have taken place, albeit I think early. I think the testimony bore out that Kane may have gone in at a number in the Rumble that he, that was earlier than when he was supposed to have entered. But Kane goes in at the behest of production to go eliminate Punk and does just that. He gets in there and eliminates Punk. And Punk apparently comes to the back. He is livid because he wanted to stay in the match and perform, I guess, as he was supposed to have. Again, with Kane eliminating him, but it was supposed to have been later in the match. And he was very upset with Dr. Aman about that entire ordeal. Now, the reason that I say that that was a portion of Dr. Amon's case is that he called a plethora of witnesses. He called, um, you know, referee, I think his name is Mark or Mike Cohn, the guy whose son was Braun Strowman's partner at WrestleMania, that guy. Um, they called him, they called Kane, they called Glenn Jacobs, um, who would testify. Now, all these guys testified by um, the Ben ASA video deposition meaning that, so yeah, video depth that was played in court, they didn't testify live. Um, and then a couple other guys uh, in production, and basically all of them sort of said that Punk was pretty upset. Jacobs is the only one that really didn't say that because he wouldn't have been in the back when Punk got back into Gorilla and whatever else. But they all pretty much testified that, um, you know, there was uh, the idea, at least was out there, that Punk was hurt that he needed to be eliminated from the match, that there were multiple pleas for him to come out of the match, and he wouldn't come out of the match, which was one of the reasons that production had to send Kane down there to eliminate him and get him out of there. So, again, the point being from Dr. Amon's perspective is Punk was very upset about that, so that may have also driven him to have made these inflammatory comments about the medical treatment that he received. But in any event, um, Again, proofs are going to close today, June 5th. I'd be interested to see how this trial shakes out. But if I were, were a betting man, based upon what I know um, about the trial to date, I, I would imagine that Dr. Amon is going to fail, unfortunately, for him and his bid to recover. Again, because I, I, I failed to see what the actual damages are. Were the comments inflammatory? Yeah, they sure were. But this is sort of the weird world we're in with medical care and making comments about medical treatment you've received here in 2018. I mean, can you go on Yelp or something and review a doctor and say that you received poor medical care because they misdiagnosed you and almost killed you? I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what you can and can't do here in 2018 with respect to those issues specifically. So 
Uh, we'll see. Again, by the time that this podcast is released, there probably will be a decision, but I probably won't have time to go back and add that to the end of the podcast. So maybe we'll cover that next week in potentially a Money in the Bank preview. So with that, let's move to the next topic, uh, being New Japan Pro Wrestling, being specifically some added matches to Dominion, and then I want to talk about New Japan and why I think New Japan is so fantastic. Um, after having gotten New Japan World, again, New Japan World, sign up for it. If you're going to watch Dominion, do it now. It would be for the entire calendar month of June. I think I signed up for it on June 2nd, so I lost a day right there. <laughs> um, but definitely get it so you can go back and watch the Best of the Super Juniors tournament, uh, particularly the last day before the finals when all of the wrestlers are trying to scratch and claw to get the final few points to make the final, and then the Best of the Super Junior final on June 4th between uh, Taiji Ishimori and Hiromu Takahashi. A fantastic match. And unfortunately, I'm going to say spoiler alert here. So if you want to shut the podcast off and listen to this after you've had a chance to go back and watch it, please do. Um, but obviously the rest of the podcast is going to focus on Dominion, and I'm going to tell you what the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship match is going to be at Dominion, thus revealing the winner. So right now, if you want to shut the podcast off and listen to it later, uh, please do, because I'm going to tell you who won. And the winner was Hiromu Takahashi. Uh, and he is the crowd favorite. Um, he was the guy, he was the right guy to win. Um, you know, Ishimori just got back into New Japan after a long time in pro wrestling Noah, and then in America, having worked with Impact. But he is an incredibly talented guy. I mean, he's ripped from top to bottom, and now he's in Bullet Club. I, I did mention a couple casts ago. I wanted to correct myself with something. I said something along the lines of, when I was talking about the Bone Soldier return, him being the only junior in Bullet Club, which obviously was not true at all, considering Marty Stroll is in Bullet, Bullet Club and has held the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. So that was completely erroneous. I apologize. But Ishimori having the big run here in this tournament. Skrull also finished with 10 points but lost tiebreakers, so he did not make the final. Um, and then, again, just an absolutely incredible match with two guys who are high flyers, who have high energy, just go nonstop, and also have a ground game, and that's what I love. I mean, you think about this. Hiromu Takahashi's main finisher right now, within the last couple of months, have become a triangle choke. <laughs> and this is for a cruiser, you know. When we're talking about cruiserweights, we're talking about high-flying, we're talking about 540 splashes, we're talking about flips, we're talking about nip-ups, we're talking about everything else under the sun. But usually submission holds are not what we're talking about, um, unless it's Marty Stroll or now in this case, Hiromu Takahashi. But again, one of the things that I'll talk about here in a minute that makes New Japan so diverse in its product and so great, uh, frankly, and it's, it's fun to watch. Once again, you know, once I every time I get New Japan World, I'm like, why aren't why don't I just have this year round? Why am I watching the swill sometimes that is WWE and the product that they put on, especially after Raw last night, um, and not focusing more on this? But so that is one of the added matches. Hiromu Takahashi then will be at Dominion to face Will Osprey again in my original Dominion preview podcast, which was put up last week. I wasn't aware as to who wrestled whom when. Um, after the BOTSJ final was completed, or even if the final was at Dominion, it's not. The final took place on June 4th, and the IWGP 
junior heavyweight title will be defended by Will Ospreay against Hiromu Takahashi at Dominion on June 9th, which should be another great match. I would suspect, actually, I'm going to go in my preview for that match with Hiromu Takahashi. I think Takahashi has the momentum. I think they have established Osprey as a top-level junior talent. I don't think they need to continue him with the belt, though. And I think that if they provide it to Takahashi, the run for Osprey has been entirely sufficient to establish him as a top-level star. So time for Takahashi to get a run here because he is, I, I think, arguably, but to me, he has kind of established himself as the top junior in New Japan right now. I think the body of work that he's put in, again, has just been phenomenal. I think he's the most consistent performer out of anybody in those ranks currently. For Osprey, again, I, I think he may lose the title here, but he is, he is a New Japan signed talent. Um, he is in the Chaos Stable. There are a lot of different ways that they can go with him. And what kind of makes it nice is that the roster is so deep in New Japan that you've got the junior tag titles as well. Um, now, of course, Sho and Yo are also in Chaos and are Rapongi 3K and are always in the junior tag title scene. But maybe Chaos could find a partner for Osprey in that respect, or he could just continue with some other singles feuds. There are plenty of guys in the single scene to feud with. And as a matter of fact, if Osprey were to keep the belt, I would think that Ishimori would be on that list um, as Ishimori defeated Osprey during the tournament. Um, so just some little nuggets to watch out for there. The other match that appears to be taking shape here um, is the Rey Mysterio match that I mentioned before. I would like to see, I w said I would have liked to have seen Rey Mysterio versus Suzuki in my earlier preview and called that hopefully as the match, but it does not appear as though Mysterio is going to appear at Dominion from a singles perspective. It looks like he is going to be a participant in a multi-man tag match, which apparently is going to include himself, Jushin Thunder Liger, and Hiroshi Tanahashi against Cody, Hangman Page, and Marty Scrawl of the Bullet Club. So that match should be interesting. I mean, you're kind of, if you had to pair it off between the six, you know, one-on-one, 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 you'd probably pair it off as, at least to me, Tanahashi and Cody, Liger and Scrawl, and then I guess that would leave Mysterio with Hangman Page, which is a little strange. Um, but something that I could see actually coming out of this tag match would be a singles program between Hiroshi Tanahashi and Cody. Um, you know, which could be interesting where you've got Tanahashi now as kind of the fallen ace, so to speak, having, you know, been bested and dethroned by Okada and maybe Cody taking advantage of that and introducing himself as the new ace, so to speak, or at least somebody who wants to, you know, maybe take that throne and maybe one of his steps towards taking that ace moniker is to beat the former ace being Hiroshi Tanahashi, um, you know, just in his arrogance and overall self-assurance. As for Mysterio, I would imagine, again, with some rest and taking a good portion of time off between matches, he was at the Greatest Royal Rumble, was his last appearance. Um, at least that I'm aware of, maybe he did some smaller indie shows, but I don't think that he has. I think he's probably picking and choosing where he's going to show up now. Um, so if that was his last appearance, that would have been, what, at the end of April? So he's had over a month to recover. 
and hopefully hopefully with that much time between matches going forward because that's about the time I think he's going to need frankly for matches going forward he can't do you know repeat programs there's no way that you could see Rey Mysterio in best of the super juniors if people wanted to see him in there because his body just can't hold up to performing that many nights in a row he's not a spring chicken anymore you know even guys like Taguchi who um, can make it happen work a very I wouldn't call it slow and methodical, but a very careful style that allows them to continue to wrestle. And they can pull out, you know, the hardline stuff, but they can only do it in very short sprints. Um, otherwise, it's a lot of rest holds, it's a lot of shenanigans, that type of stuff. And late in your career, that's what keeps you going. Because you, you can't do that. You can't wrestle like Taiji Ishimori and Hiromu Takahashi did in the final your entire career. I mean, there's just no way you can do it. Not if you want your career to last you, you know, into your 40s. You certainly can. I mean, if you did that every night, you're going to be in your 20s. You'll be done by your early 30s. And, you know, maybe that's how you want to, you know, your wrestling career to play out. But just remember, you're not going to be collecting a paycheck for the next 10, 15 years afterwards. Whereas if you had changed your style, maybe you would be. So I think that's something all the young guys have to kind of keep in mind. But... Um, I would imagine that the, the, the good team, the good guy team, uh, team uh, Tanahashi and friends is probably going to take this match. And again, maybe you'll see um, a Cody Tanahashi program spin out of this. I don't know if I could see any of the other four getting into programs. And this is just kind of an excuse to get Mysterio on the card. I don't see a full-fledged relationship between Mysterio and New Japan going forward. They could have a one-off if their team were to lose between Mysterio and Liger, which was the original idea. Granted, that would probably have to include Mysterio turning heel in some sort of sense, but if there, if one of them got pinned, um, you know, and it was a mistake, or even Cody, or Tanahashi got pinned maybe by Cody, and it was some um, miscommunication between um, Mysterio and Liger that caused the pin, maybe you could see the two of them having a one-off match. Um, later down the line here. Unfortunately, it won't be at Dominion. Maybe you could do it on the card of the G1 final um, or something like that, you know, is to not wait for Wrestle Kingdom, uh, which would be another, what, seven months off right now. So that that would be a little too long to wait. We also have a tag match that includes, kind of includes a matchup that I thought might be happening at Dominion, because if you remember, I said, well, one belt that's kind of hanging out there that we don't know if it's being defended is the United States Championship held by Jay White, and I knew that he had recently had a program with Finley, and I suspected he may wrestle Juice Robinson at Dominion, and sure enough, he's going to be wrestling Finley and Juice Robinson in a tag match. So, it will be Jay White and Yoshihashi, which is sort of an interesting pairing, um, against David Finley and Juice Robinson. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, other than just kind of generally to say, I think that Tanahashi and friends, Team Tanahashi and friends, Taguchi Tanahashi, um, being Finley and Juice Robinson are going to get the pin. And I think it's going to be Juice Robinson pinning Jay White to set up a U.S. title match in the future. I, I guess I'm not totally understanding why they're not doing a Juice White title match here at Dominion again because the G1 final is a big event, maybe put that on the G1 final card which is when, I don't even recall from a calendar perspective that that's in either late August or early September. It's, it's got to be one or the other, the G1 final. Um, 
but maybe that's what they're setting him for. But I would suspect that Robinson's going to get the pin on White to set that program up in the future. Again, when that match is going to transpire, I'm not sure. Maybe it'll even be earlier than the G1 final um, at a an event that they have coming up in July. But we will see. Maybe who knows? You have to remember they're setting up for the G1 special in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, so I have to remember that they could be building the card out for that as well. Maybe Cody Tanahashi would be a part of that. Um, Juice and Jay White for the U.S. title. Uh, so that's something I need to stay cognizant of. The other match that will be taking place is for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Titles between Kanemaru and El Desperado from Suzuki-Goon, who are the current champions, versus Rapongi 3K, trying to get the titles back. Um, I mean, the junior tag title scene is now without the Young Bucks. Kind of, eh. I mean, Rapongi 3K seem to be the flag bearers, but they're still very green and very young. I mean, for being green and young, they're great wrestlers showing, yo, don't get me wrong. Um, but the Rapongi 3K thing to me is a little bl bland. It's very, you know, J-pop-esque. I mean, as an adult, I don't really connect with it, but, you know, they're good wrestlers. Um, it wouldn't be bad to see them, the belts back on them, the Suzuki-Goon nonsense to start matches, the interference, the attacks before the bell kind of wear on you over time. Um, but I'm going to say, because the, the run hasn't been very long here for Kanemaru and El Desperado, that there is some Suzuki-Goon shenanigan take, that takes place that allows them to keep the belt. What that's going to be, I don't know, but that's my anticipation for that match. But again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Rapongi 3K, this is one I'm going to kind of waffle on. I wouldn't be surprised if they took the belts because they're the ones that should really be holding it for the extended period of time. Not anybody from Suzuki Goon, not Taguchi and Partner X. I mean, unless you're going to set up Stroll and Ishimori as a tag team who would just go out and kill guys because they're two fantastic wrestlers. Maybe that is a match you could have for Wrestle Kingdom, actually. Stroll and Ishimori versus Rapongi 3K. That would be an entertaining match. Um, for Wrestle Kingdom 13, so let's keep that in the back burner, in the back of our head, see if that happens. But, um, Rapongi 3K are the, at least, from an in-ring entertainment perspective, the best thing that they have going right now, New Japan at least, so let's see if they don't, um, continue the belts on them, since Bushi and Takahashi are engaged otherwise, specifically Takahashi with the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship, from a singles perspective. So, with that preview of the remaining matches being done, let's go into my discussion about New Japan and, again, why I think it's the hot product over WWE currently. Um, and I think that, you know, I was watching Wrestling Duntaku because I went back and watched the Okada-Tanahashi match that I hadn't watched from that event in April because I didn't have the uh, New Japan World at that time. And that was an absolutely fantastic, just knock him down, drag him out match. And then you compare that with Raw, and it's just night and day. And, and one of the first things that I appreciate about New Japan is the focus on wrestling. And do they have the backstory kind of stuff? Yeah, they do. But it's not all of this entertainment nonsense. And that's, again, th this is where your personal preferences and your tastes come in. You know, if you want actual wrestling on the card, New Japan is going to be for you, as opposed to WWE. It just is. I, I mean, the ratio of wrestling to other facets of the promotion on a show is not even remotely close. I mean, I'd say New Japan is 90% wrestling. 
maybe 85 at the very worst. And WWE is 35% wrestling to 40% wrestling, maybe. Um, so that's it's 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 a completely different product from that perspective. In WWE, you have the you know behind the scenes videos, you know the locker room videos, um, you know the, where you're in. I guess the videos where you're in, I would suppose it's Gorilla, where you've got you know either Kurt Angle on Raw or Paige on SmackDown. You're talking about the card for the rest of the night and setting up matches and what have you. In New Japan, when you go into the event, the matches are laid out for you. When you purchase the event, you know what the card is. It's like going to a boxing event. You know who's wrestling. You know even generally what the sequence of the matches is going to be. You know what the main event is going to be. These things are not you know, surprises. And maybe some people like to be surprised, but I'm telling you the majority of the surprises that you get from WWE in terms of what the matches are going to be are not good. I mean, sometimes you might get something random like do you want to see daniel bryan wrestle you know wrestle seth rollins yeah okay i mean th that happens every blue moon but a lot of times you end up with matches that you just really don't want to see and not only that but segments that you really don't want to see and another great example of that just from last night is the bobby lashley Sami Zayn match or not even match, but I mean that's that's just it. It wasn't a match. Bobby Lashley and Sami Zayn, the program or whatever the heck it is that they had last night, um, where you've got all of this nonsense with the whole thing with Lashley and his sisters, and then Zayn calling out his military record, I guess, which is what he did yesterday. Um, you know, it, it, it's just painful to watch. And Lashley Lashley doesn't have enough of a personality to fire back. Zane is still incredibly awkward as a heel. So the whole thing really just, at some juncture, just kind of becomes painful. And you fill, you know, a good 15 minutes of the show with that, of your three-hour show with that. If you have a three-hour show in New Japan Pro Wrestling, let me tell you, first of all, that is a pay-per-view level event because you're generally not going to get a three-hour show. Um, you're probably getting closer something, something closer to a two-hour show. But you don't have that type of stuff. The closest you're going to get to that in New Japan you know, the Lashley Sami Zayn segment is, you know, the splitting of the Bullet Club when uh, Kenny Omega attacked AJ Styles two years ago and at New Year's Dash. And then, you know, they reformed and, um, you know, I guess surrounded their support around Kenny. You know, that's the closest you're going to get to something like that. And when New Japan does it, they do it with a purpose. They do it knowing that they're specifically trying to advance a major storyline angle. When WWE does it, there, there's nothing that you could quantify as major or barely even storyline about what transpired with Sami Zayn and Bobby Lashley. It was just nonsense. And if you're fine with that, if, if that's okay for you, then that's one thing, but I, I can't watch that kind of stuff. I just can't. And if for every great segment that WWE has, there are at least five to ten terrible ones. This isn't the Attitude Era anymore. We don't have The Rock coming out of the mic or Stone Cold coming out of the mic and doing something outrageous and awesome and something that the crowd's never seen before. You know, firstly, all these tricks have been used, so there's pretty much nothing that anybody hasn't seen before. And secondly, these talents just aren't there on the mic. I think Braun Strowman has evolved as somebody who's pretty good. You obviously have The Miz, who's great. When Cena's around, he's pretty darn good. But a lot of these WWE superstars are just not 
good on the mic. Reigns still struggles on the mic. Lashley is not good at all on the mic, and they just brought him in. I think he needs to go back to uh, character school or something like that, depending on what you want to call it. Styles is decent on the mic. I don't think anybody would say that the mic's ever been where his he's made his living. It's been more so in the ring, but he's okay. But to live and die by, you know, the, what, what everybody's these superstars are doing on the mic is just, again, it's not the Attitude Era anymore, and you're not entertaining fans in that respect. You know, when these they have these segments, to me, they're more cringeworthy than anything else. Um, and again, it's a more of a family-oriented show, so I guess that's the stuff that gets over and not so much violent wrestling, but... You know, that that's one thing for me is just the this, this segments and the amount of time spent on these segments as opposed to actual wrestling. And when New Japan puts on actual wrestling, they, they make it out to be a sport. You know, WWE doesn't do that, and they're not shy about it either, I guess to their credit. You know, they're not trying to present wrestling as an actual sport, um, even though WWE is now covered by ESPN and CBS and some other major Internet networks. Um, you know, they're still not trying to portray WWE as some sort of actual sporting event. It's more so you know, what the moniker is, which is entertainment. I mean, that's what it is. It's not like New Japan where you've got the red corner and the blue corner and you're presenting it as um, something that really matters and that may not have a predetermined outcome. You know, WWE, if you're watching an event in WWE, chances are you're very aware that this is a pro wrestling match with a predetermined outcome. And, you know, that's, I, I suppose, fine if you're down with that. But in New Japan, not only do they have the red corner and the blue corner and they make it seem more professional from that capacity, the crowd is so much more invested. If you haven't watched a New Japan crowd or haven't gotten New Japan World um, streaming service to watch, some of these events, just get it, pay the 999 yen, you know, and do it, because it'll be worth your time to see the spectacle that these guys put on. It really will be. And that leads right into another element of New Japan that I think makes it the superior product, um, being kind of the aspect of realism and violence. I mean, these guys are essentially really hitting each other. <laughs> if Katsuyora Shibata's concussion and well it wasn't just a concussion it was bleeding in the brain um, from April 2017 taught you anything it's that they're, they're really striking each other and that is certainly scary from the perspective of hey I mean they can legitimately get hurt and not just hurt but severely injured as in the case of Shibata but I do think that the headbutt delivered by Shibata and the headbutt in general is an extreme Example, uh, you've seen Kenny Omega, for instance, he delivers what is referred to as a V-trigger, okay? And a V-trigger is basically a running knee um, that's kind of right to the face. And you can hear the V-trigger from a mile away. I mean, the thing makes a ton of noise. It's a very violent type move. You don't see anybody doing running V-trigger knees in WWE. You don't see... A whole lot of apron power bombs going on in WWE, although it does happen. Kevin Owens will do it. Somebody did like a Falcon Arrow on an apron. I think it might have been Rollins um, a couple of weeks ago on Raw, which kind of shocked me. Um, but generally, apron moves you won't obviously see in WWE. Many of the submission moves that are performed in New Japan just generally look crisper, look like they're actually 
inflicting damage on somebody rather than, you know, like the rocks sharpshooter, which looks like it doesn't do a whole heck of a lot of anything. And then even clotheslines and lariats will land in New Japan and, and look like real damaging moves as opposed to moves that you just kind of feel or filler in WWE. You know, I mean, Kazuchika Okada has made <laughs> the last two, three years of his career off of the Rainmaker Lariat. And people in WWE would probably think that you're joking or, you know, telling them some sort of story if you said that you wanted to use that move or utilize it for a finisher. They would tell you that that's not what that is. But look what Okada's been able to make it out to be. I mean, the only person that's really had a discus clothesline or any type of clothesline as their finisher in WWE recently was Luke Harper. But I know that the Bludgeon Brothers have their own finisher that I think varies from that. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the ways in which the violence and realism of New Japan really dwarfs anything that WWE is putting out in that respect. And finally, I would have to refer to just general storylines and storyline construction. I mean, it sort of goes hand in hand to a degree with the presentation of the product that I discussed earlier, but New Japan, I feel as though, plans out storylines months in advance, whereas WWE just frankly doesn't do that. I mean, WWE, they're so haphazard on throwing things together at the last minute. Um, putting together filler segments. Yeah, I just listened to you know, one of the latest talk is Jericho's with uh, Stu Bennett, also better known as Wade Barrett. And they talked a, a decent amount in the podcast about what caused Barrett to leave WWE. And a lot of what he had discussed was just having a lack of a character and lack of a storyline. And he really you know, didn't like the fact that he felt as though the Bad News Barrett character was kind of taken out from under him by creative. And then specifically towards the end of his WWE run, he was complaining that he was slotted into certain segments. And apparently what they do when they run Raw and SmackDown is they number the segments for the show. And he was even calling out particular numbers like 4, 11, some of those saying that those were segments where if you saw that you were in that numbered segment, you knew you pretty much weren't doing anything. It was, it was essentially a filler segment. It was maybe a three to five minute match that didn't advance a storyline. It was something like that, um, just to kill time, for lack of a better word. And in the last year that he was there, pretty much in 2016, um, he found that he was constantly being booked in those segments. And in New Japan, those segments sort of don't really exist. Because again, if there's promo work in New Japan, it's extremely tailored to an actual use. There's nobody's just, you know, going around and not to kind of kill the New Day on this, but nobody's literally going out and tossing pancakes just to do it. Or things like the Baron Corbin, Kurt Hawkins taco deal that they did on Raw. I didn't even watch raw I, I maybe watched well i can't say i didn't watch it at all i maybe watched like 20 minutes of it i didn't see that segment but i all i know was that kurt hawkins was out with tacos and baron corbin threw him into the tacos or something like that I, you know I, what what that does I, I just don't totally understand i mean with new japan you're not seeing silliness like that you're seeing 
you know, Jericho attacking Kenny Omega. You're seeing Jericho attack Naito. You're seeing, from a New Japan-specific perspective, the Bullet Club angles, um, particularly AJ Styles coming out in 2014 with his hoodie on and attacking Okada. Um, Kenny Omega turning on Styles in 2016. Suzuki-Goon returning in 2017. And then when there is you know, talking rather than action, it's usually after a tournament, like you know somebody speaking after having won the G1 or the New Japan Cup or that type of thing. If you want to freewheel it, you can do that in New Japan too. But what they do, which is smart, is they'll have cameras in the back and then basically you go in the back after your match for a lot of shows specifically they do I know they do this during the G1 and they probably did it during Best of Super Juniors I think they did to a degree as well and then they'll put whatever you say in front of the cameras in the back up on New Japan World and you can watch it that way but it's not something that they're filling time with that's the difference okay so if you're watching a show you're not watching these silly GM angles that take up 15 to 20 minutes of the show. Instead, they're having, and it's not even GM angles, but a lot of times they're very interesting, but they're having people talk in the back. And then if you want to choose to dig that up and watch it after the fact, you could do that on New Japan World, but they're not making it a live part of the product, which to me is great. That's how it should be. If I want to watch that stuff, I'll watch it on demand. You know, I don't want to be force-fed that. I want to be force-fed the wrestling. That's the stuff I tune in for, not all of the other nonsense. And one of the starkest comparisons and contrast between New Japan and WWE from a presentation slash storyline perspective comes in the form of the element of the authority figure. In WWE, for the last 20 or so years, right, even more longer than that, really, at, that, at this point, you've had the element of the authority figure. All right, ever since Vince essentially became an on-screen character, which was arguably, what, 96, 97 for the most part, you've had an ever-present authority figure on Raw and then subsequently SmackDown. SmackDown's never been without an authority figure <laughs> because SmackDown didn't come out until, what, 2000? So you've got these authority figures that supposedly book the matches and are a part of the storyline from that perspective. That, in and of itself, may be one of the single largest differences between pro wrestling and sports entertainment because once you introduce the authority figure to me that's when things start to become kind of almost downright goofy because you know that you know the authority figure booking the match puts an extra layer of acting into the product that you don't have to have new japan doesn't have an authority figure the matches happen the match the matches get booked and then the matches happen and people, you know, who are smarks know that Jado and Gato are the ones who pull the strings behind the scenes and are putting the matches together. But Gato's, and both Jado and Gato, also, again, smarks know, wrestle in New Japan. But their characters in New Japan, their wrestling personas, have nothing to do with being authority figures. Gato's the one who gets more screen time because he is Okada's manager, but... You never see Gato getting called out by Naito for a, you know, in the middle of, you know, a New Japan segment with Naito saying, how dare you book me against this person or something like that. Or I don't like this match, book me, or I want to wrestle this person. That never happens because it's unnecessary. You don't need it to happen. 
you advance storyline elements and then you book the match and there doesn't need to be somebody on the screen saying, I'm going to book this guy versus this guy because look what happened. He got attacked from behind and that match needs to happen. Great. It somehow just gets scheduled. And then that's the match for the next pay-per-view. Because you know what? It makes sense. You don't have to have all this nonsense. So again, to me, that is a major element of it. If you like the whole... You know, Kurt Angle on Raw, Paige on SmackDown, Stephanie, Stephanie McMahon, Shane McMahon, authority nonsense, then that's that's your prerogative. Um, but that kind of stuff is just not my bag, and I could really, really live without it. So the fact that New Japan gets down to business with the matches, not only that, but then when they have New Japan World up, I can literally just go in and click whatever match I want, rather than having to bring up the pay-per-view on a whole. And WWE Network is fine with that, actually, anyway, because once you get into the pay-per-view, they've got those little dots at the bottom that you can follow. But still, I think New Japan um, does it a little bit better by being able to pick up the individual matches. Um, and I just watch the match. And then if I want to watch some sort of post-match presser, because I thought it was an interesting match, and I want to see what the wrestlers have to say, I click the post-match presser. I mean, it's so, it's so simple. Um, and, and to me, that's the way to present it. And maybe part of me is worn by the WWE product in that it's a live event every week, and it's always there, and it's ever-present. Whereas when New Japan, it's broadcast on Axis, but the... You know, shows that are broadcast on Access are not live shows, except for very unique exceptions. I think Dominion is going to be live on Access. And I know that um, Wrestle Kingdom, I believe, was live on Access. I think they paid a lot to broadcast that. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the you know secondary pay-per-views, the road to shows, that type of stuff, you know, is, is taped and when it comes on there. And so... You know, again, from that perspective, you're kind of picking and choosing and cherry picking the best matches and the stuff you want to see. So again, the fact that I'm not having to be, you know, force-fed a bunch of filler certainly helps what you know the quality of the product that I'm watching, as opposed to WWE. Finally, one thing that I'll point out is I think a major weakness of WWE that causes the fact that we have these you know filler matches and filler segments is just the scope of the roster. WWE is so large now, and they have such a massive roster, as opposed probably to any other time in its existence, that they, they need to fill the time to get these talents you know, on-air time, for lack of a better term. I mean, they, they've got to do it so that the talents have time to shine, and that's what's really taking away from the product as a whole, because they need to get talents that either shouldn't be on the air, period, or... I think even more prevalent storyline booking or lack of storyline booking because there is so much time to fill. And the, the writers I certainly blame, but I, I do give them a little bit, a very small portion of leeway and add the caveat that they're, they're writing for more airtime than they've ever pretty much had to write for before because not only are you doing Raw and SmackDown, you have NXT, you've got pay-per-views that are longer than ever. Um, so in trying to fill all these, you've got more talent than ever. To, for, so for, to try to fill all this time with all these segments is not an easy thing for them to do. And again, to me, it takes away from the product as a whole. Another reason I like New Japan and the, and the fact that they have a very tailored roster that hasn't blown up out of control. 
so that is the podcast for this week. I'm actually finalizing here, it here on Thursday, which is June 7th. Um, apologize, but it's a long story about my recording equipment having been lost, um, and I didn't find it until yesterday, so that's why I'm finishing up now. Uh, but hopefully I will have this um, uploaded probably this afternoon. So thanks, everybody, and have a great weekend.